Well, Merry Christmas. Okay. You know, we really want to thank you uh, for being here this evening, for worshiping with us. And I know for a lot of you, these songs are just kind of carols that are just like, after a while, we're just singing the words and don't really remember, realize what we're singing anymore. So traditional, so every year, sometimes so boring. Um, sometimes we're so distracted. We were busy getting here. We just took a time out to slip in here real quick, and we're all kind of checking our watches or our cell phones. Some of us don't wear watches anymore because we have cell phones. And, um, and we're just ready to get back to our turkey and whatever's in the oven and wherever we're going to eat. Um, I just want to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Um, we're not going to go long tonight, but I want you to be engaged. I want you to be here um, and allow the Lord to challenge you on the real meaning of, of Christmas. So I want to ask you to pray with me uh, in this moment. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would, in these next few moments, uh, speak to us, um, that you would uh, help us to really see, uh, just experience a revelation of what Christmas is about, what the real meaning is, what's at stake, um, and we just ask that we would leave here focused and overjoyed that you sent your son to be a conquering king. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I should introduce myself. Your pastor is not speaking tonight. I've been given a short window of time to be with you this evening. My name is John. And from what I hear, the name John is just as common in your day as it was in mine. In my day, there was a lot of heavy hitters named John. You had John Mark, he wrote a gospel. You had John the Baptizer, who was kind of kooky, but he was a good guy. But I was different. I wrote a lot of the Bible. I wrote more than John Mark. I don't say that to my pride, but this, the Lord gifted me with that. But I wasn't always a writer. I was a fisherman. Um, I didn't wear clothes like this. I don't even know what this is. Uh, I was told to put it on. But I was a fisherman. I, I, I used nets, and we didn't have a lot of the equipment that you have today. And there was this man, Jesus, who would walk around just preaching, and it was like no other preaching you had ever heard, ever. No rabbi, no one could speak like this man. And one day he came by the boat, and we had, we've sat under his teaching before. He, we kind of knew who he was. And we were fixing the nets, we were mending the nets. We, were, we didn't have a lot of money, we just had to keep repairing the ones that broke. And he said, come here, follow me. My brother James and I just looked at our dad, Zebedee. We looked at him and we all knew. There was no discussion, there was no conversation. We dropped the nets and we walked and we followed Jesus. From then on, it was crazy. It was crazy. You know, Jesus had a few really good years of ministry. And before it wasn't long before he was carted away and taken and crucified and we were left to fend for ourselves and... I don't want to keep you here all night, so I'll make the story short, but some of you know what happened to my, my dear brothers. In fact, I was the only one of the 12 of us that wasn't killed. 
for our faith. Because we didn't say Hail Caesar, because we believe that Jesus was who He said He was. Who He said He was. That He was the King. The real King. Um, I was tortured. I was sent in exile to a land, an island called Patmos. It's still there today. You can go see it. It's not the, the rock crag that it was when I was there. Now it looks nice and touristy, but it was just a dry, barren place, six miles wide, ten miles long, and I was just in prison there and tortured for what I believe. Now, I've been watching you guys for a long time, a couple thousand years. I'm ready to get all this over with. Are you? <laughs> that Jesus would just come back, but, but I've been watching. And Do you guys know that Christians are the most heavily persecuted people group in the history of the world. In the history of the world. I mean, what we had to face. Some of my fellow disciples, sawn in two, beheaded, crucified upside down. Christians were taken in families, just in groups like this, just in chunks, and then carted off to coliseums. I think today you'd call them stadiums. And today everything's nice and friendly. The toughest thing you do is, is bang each other with a bunch of pads and helmets and like a pigskin weird thing. I don't know. <laughs> they would gather and grab their equivalent of your, of your concession stand food. And they'd gather and watch the children and the parents and the grandparents who professed Christ get mauled to death by lions. And they would cheer and it would, it would be, you know... And now, now, I mean, this was this was a reality. To be a Christian was to have a death sentence. If you were caught, you would be killed. And I was on this island of Patmos, and I was contemplating these things, and the Lord gave me a story to tell. And the story I want to share with you this evening is the story I want to share with you because I want you to understand why it's tough to be a Christian. Now, some of you go, no, we, we don't get thrown to lions and we don't get arrested. But from what I understand, it still could be difficult to be a Christian. Uh, from what I hear, some of you are, are hesitant to say Christmas because now you're supposed to say holidays. And it's hard to be bold enough to just do that. Why is it difficult? To be a Christian. Now, some of you say they're politicians. Some of you would talk about sociology. Some of you would talk about uh, the, the scene, the anthropology, and the culture, and things like that. No. No. There's something behind all that. The story begins with a woman. She wasn't very much to look at, okay? Uh, but she was blessed of God. I mean, God just clothed her in such radiant light like she was just clothed with the sun. The moon was under her feet. I mean, it's like she was just given everything. Blessed of God. That made someone very jealous. We'll call this someone uh, the dragon. I know sometimes dragons are cute and we get tattoos of dragons and they're in Chinese restaurants and things and different cultures have done different things with dragons. But there was nothing cute about this dragon. It was seven heads, ten horns. And some of you are like, how does that math work? Some heads had more of the horns than one. That's how. Had crowns on every horn. I mean, this thing was seething, hatred, teeth of iron. I mean, this was a red, beastly 
dragon. It wasn't always a dragon, though. <laughs> it wasn't always a dragon. It was a glorious being that, that worshipped the Creator. But in his jealousy and his pride, he was twisted and he became this ugly beast. Was thrown down from heaven. He couldn't have the sun. He couldn't have the moon like the woman did. But while he was getting tossed down, his tail swept a third of the stars. And the sky was darker because of him. Those beautiful stars he turned into little minions, little servile beings that would serve him to help him attack and, and, and make uh, a war against the woman. The woman was pregnant. And there's a moment where she's in pain and she's giving birth to a child and the dragon is, looks like he's sleeping, but he's not sleeping. He's waiting for the birth of this child, this male child who was supposed to be born and rule over the universe, rule over all things, the stars, the moons, the planets, the air, the sky, the earth, the sea, the water, the woods, everything. This child was supposed to rule everything. Now you see, when this dragon was cast down, he was given dominion on earth. Earth was kind of his playground. He was given some control. But he knew if this child is born, all that would go away. He would rule all things. And so he waited for the child to be born so that he could snap, eat the child, devour the child. Well, it didn't work. The child was born. It was kind of sneaky. Some coincidental things fell together. The child grew up and was caught up to God. And did what he was supposed to do. Now, the, the dragon lost that battle, so angry. This child, now he can't help it. This child is going to rule. He chases the woman. And he chases the woman for three and a half years. He floods the earth with water to try to drown the woman out. He has control over the earth, right? He can control floods and the floodplains and all that. But in the background, you still had the Creator over all things who opened up the earth, swallowed that water to protect the woman. She was safe. But the woman had other offspring. And now the dragon would turn his attention to attack the offspring, to war against the offspring. Now here's the kicker, okay? The dragon has a special power. The dragon has a special weapon that he wields. And it didn't work on the child. He tried it. It didn't work on the child. But it does work on the offspring. It's a killer blow. No one can withstand it. You can't, when the dragon attacks you with this special power, it's called Kategoron. Can we say that? Kategoron. Let's say it together. Kategoron. That's a special power. It's called Kategoron. When the dragon attacked you with Kategoron, there was nothing you can do. You can't, you die. You die. Unless, unless you personally knew the one person that Kategoron would not work on. The child. You couldn't just say you knew about the child. You couldn't just say I heard a story about a child. You had to know the child personally. By name. And that child knows you by name. And if you had that personal connection with the child, Kategoron could never touch you. But if you just know about the story about the child, if you kind of just celebrate this history of the child, and what happened with the child and the woman. You kind of know these things and you have pictures of these things around and you celebrate these things, but you don't know the child yourself. You cannot escape Kategoran. Now, I would finish the story, but I can't because the story is not finished. 
It's still playing out now, here, even in your part of the world, even in your day. Because if understand what's been happening here I'm not just telling you a story that's a fairy tale these things represent things and I like to do that I wrote a whole book full of these kind of things if you like it it's the last book in the Bible you can read it all kinds of symbols and meanings um, a lot of it's been lost since that was like 2,000 years ago I understand that some of the symbols may lose some of their meaning so I'm gonna help you along can't give you everything because the time is short but I'll give you enough I hope the dragon, you know who the dragon is. He's a serpent. If you read the first book of the Bible, like I, was, I had to memorize it when I was a child, the Garden of Eden, who came and deceived that first couple? It was a serpent. The serpent, the dragon, is a symbol of Lucifer, who was an angel and fell and took a third of the angels with him. Now they're demons. The woman was Israel. And the child that was to be born is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at history, everybody knows what happened when the child was born. Herod heard news that the child would be born. And in his fury that this child was to be born and be king, he ordered that every child two years and under in the vicinity, not just Bethlehem, but in the whole region, would be killed. They sent soldiers into the homes to kill these children, two years and under. That's a historical fact. Now we can look back in history and go, now Herod was one crazy man. What kind of lunatic would do something like that? That's on the surface. What was really happening was that was the dragon's attempt to devour the child. So you see how what sounds like a fairy tale has real repercussions in real life. Kategoron. What is this thing? He couldn't, he couldn't devour the child. He chased the woman to try to kill the woman before she could reproduce any other offspring, but it was too late. The woman reproduced everywhere. India. Thomas took the gospel there. Uh, Asia Minor. Up, down, north, east, west. It came to the Americas. I mean, the, the gospel was so spread, it was the, the dragon lost his chance to kind of just snuff out little Christianity. It had taken over. It's everywhere now. So he has one thing left. To make war against all the offspring. And if you haven't caught it by now, all the offspring is you. Sitting here. To make war against the offspring, he still has Kategoran. Kategorin is just the Koine Greek for accusation. See, because the dragon's greatest weapon is to accuse. He goes before God and he, he, he says your name. Hey, him. Hey, her. Hey, him. He sinned. You see, Lucifer messed up and he was cast out. We messed up and we get a second chance. That's not fair. This, this, this angers him. He goes before God and he accuses. He accuses. You remember he did that in Job. But what about Job? He accuses. That's the attack. Now who of us in here can say, I can take an accusation, the accusation that I'm a sinner, and I can say, nope, wrong, I'm innocent. Now you might say that, but you'd be a liar. And the truth would not be in you. 
all of us have sinned, all of us have messed up, all of us have something dirty, something in a closet, something in the background, something that if you were to go through with a fine-tooth comb, you'd hit a snag somewhere there. You look at the Ten Commandments and you go, man, maybe I haven't done all these things out there, but in my heart and in my mind, wow, I broke that one, I broke that one, I broke that one, if you're just honest with yourself. When we're accused, we lose, guys, we lose. Unless... You personally know the child that was born and lived the life that we couldn't live. The dragon tried to get him with Kategoron, but there was nothing to accuse him of. He lived the perfect life. And then he died the death that we should have died. To know him personally is the only antidote, (laughs) is the only way out from that accusation. And so you see how easy it is to look at Christmas. And it's a child in a feeding trough and there's some shepherds and there's some kings that show up. And I got to tell you, you guys are a little confused. (laughs) I mean, you you have the the, the kings. The kings showed up a lot later. Um, There was more than three of them and they weren't kings. So, I mean, we're a little, you know, (laughs) but that's okay. That's okay. You You guys are trying to protect the nativity story. And you see, some people feel like, I skipped the nativity story. Matthew wrote about it in Matthew 1-2. through 2. Uh, uh, Luke wrote about it in his gospel. Mark skipped it because he was low on paper, so that's like the short one. I didn't skip it. I put it in my last book. And rather than telling you the story with historical characters, I wanted to tell you the story of what's going on behind the scenes. That there is an accuser. And there is a God. And there is only one person that can give you the escape that you need from that accusation. At Christmas we talk about hope and we talk about joy and we talk about peace. These are things that we cannot attain if we didn't have Christmas. Do you realize the truth in that? That without that Savior, without that Christ, without that Messiah, we would all be, we would all be underneath condemnation. Where there would be no peace. There would be no hope. There would be no salvation. But because the child was born, he was able to create the antidote that we needed to escape the categorion, to escape the accusation. Now as we leave these doors tonight, and I'm wrapping up because I've got to go, you're going to be tempted to just treat Christmas like it's a fairy tale. As I was coming in this evening, I noticed some weird things on some of your lawns. You've got like these deer stags made of lights. And then there's like um, striped canes. I don't know if that's from the shepherds or something. Um, You have these weird like lit up effigies of a a jolly old fat man that I think is supposed to be St. Nicholas. I'll have to ask him when I get back. But you shroud, you shroud, not you maybe personally, but America maybe, shrouds Christmas in fairy tale. So that when you grow up, you realize what's fake and what's not, what's true and what's not true. And it's very easy to just take the whole idea of Christmas in one fell swoop and put it on the shelf of fairy tale. That might be true for a lot of pieces about it, but it's not true for what I just told you. You're in the middle of a waging war. And the only way out 
is that baby in the manger. The only way out is to personally know Jesus. Then you know the true meaning of Christmas, why it was a rescue mission, and how you can be rescued from the accuser. I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to close in a time of worship. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you've brought each and every person that's here this evening, that you've brought them here. And Lord, we ask that as you, um, as you speak to us from your word that will be read in a moment, that you would allow those words to seep in and that all the symbolism and imagery wouldn't be lost on us, that it would pierce and we would know how desperately we need to know Jesus Christ, our Savior, who stands on the shore of time to protect those who would bear your testimony, who know that you are the Lamb who shed His blood so we can be rescued. You live the perfect life so that we would not be accused and be condemned. We thank You for it. We ask that anyone in here who does not know You would find You. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Christian Fellowship Church of Itasca, Illinois. 